Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Francine, let's bring in our guest, Julia Coronado, with us uh, to make us smarter. Um, as uh, well, we've been talking through the morning, Julia, about the Fed. How important is the vice chairman job? Dr. L. Arian was vetted uh, to be vice chairman. Is it like a big deal to people like you? It can be a big deal, yeah. I think the who the vice chair is will very much set the tone for the committee. Um, we know, and, and the other important position is, of course, the president of the New York Fed, which we know that President Dudley will be, uh, you know, stepping down and, and handing over the reins to somebody in mid-year next year. So so there's going to be a lot of change in the key leadership positions. And yes, it does matter. It matters a lot in, in terms of how they will work with Chairman Powell uh, and what their views will be on monetary policy. Do you worry, Julie, about communication? That because you have so many new kids on the block at FOMC, sure. they'll talk, you know, not no, too much or not enough. Sure. Well, look, the the Fed is still committed to transparency, and I don't expect that to change. But as you say, just the fact that the cast of characters is changing could make it more of a cacophony and harder to sort through the tea leaves. So I think it is going to be. You know, there was sort of a sigh of relief when when Powell was announced as as the successor to Chair Yellen, um, on the idea that that we we would have continuity in policy and communication. I think that is true for Powell himself, but for who will the vice chair be, who will be the New York Fed president, that will also be very important to setting the tone. And we just don't know. We just don't know uh, wh who those people will be and what issues they'll be confronting as 2018 unfolds. Julia, does the yield curve just keeps on getting flatter and mm -hmm. flatter? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think you know that's the the current issue on the table. We saw that in the minutes last week that uh, one of the potential drivers of this is persistently low inflation, and what should the Fed do about this? So far, the choices have been easy because it's about getting off zero. It's about getting away from you know ultra accommodative policy policy to something that's more neutral. But once you get there or once you get closer, how much attention should you pay? How much weight should you put on persistently low inflation? The Fed seems like they're starting to rethink this notion that, oh, this is all good, just transitory and going to go away and, and, and starting to prepare a potential policy response if it sticks around. You know, you really brought up and Francine frankly brought up something that, that was a big deal last week. And I just in the blur this morning, folks missed it which is the flatter yield curve. Mm -hmm. Does anybody in the profession worry oh, that we're yes. getting near the recession signal? I mean, you've got a run rate GDP under 2%. Right. I, I'm going to call that wicked gloomy. Good morning, Boston. <laughs> wicked gloomy. But, but within realistic, that, Tom, realistic. Okay, realistic, not wicked gloomy. <laughs> but we also are getting towards a wicked flat yield curve, yes. or are we not? Yeah. No, well, we are. I mean, and, and uh, the 10-year seems very stuck below 250, and if unless and until that changes... Uh, then the Fed is going to be flattening out the yield curve uh, even further as they proceed with normalization. We've heard a few FOMC members express concern about that. Now, I don't, necess I don't necessarily subscribe to the yield curve being a, a signal of impending doom. That might surprise you since you think I'm so gloomy, but I actually don't think uh, it's necessarily sending a, a recessionary signal so much as a a signal of structurally low inflation and lower growth globally, meaning that, you know, the 10-year at 250 to or close 
two there is not that yeah. bad a deal. Julie, are you gloomy about inflation expectations? What do they do from here? So that's, I think, the key challenge for the Fed. I think if you look at all measures, there is evidence of a break lower somewhere around 2013. We just got settled into lower expectations, whether it's survey market um, or, or forecasters. Everybody sort of shifted down to a new paradigm. It's been stable since then, these measures. Uh, and the Fed's challenge is to keep them where they are uh, and keep core inflation where it is and not lose further ground, because that is, I think, the key for them and the challenge for the next downturn. Can you keep inflation and inflation expectations anchored if we get hit by another recessionary shock? Uh, Julie, if we get the tax cuts or the tax cut proposal plan, mm -hmm. does that mm -hmm. help with inflation expectations? It probably does. I mean, it probably will give a, a near-term push to growth, at least for a while. And that will probably, you know, since we are at full employment, that will only pressure the labor market further and potentially bring forward some more wage growth. So it is inflationary in that sense. And the Fed uh, may want to accommodate it to some degree to to get that inflation higher. Uh, they're, of course, weighing all of this against gr concerns about market bubbles and, and financial instability concerns. But, um, but yeah, I think at, at the margin that it, it helps probably inflation and inflation expectations more than it does growth itself. Yeah, so how do you get that 3% growth that, uh, that we know the administration wants? Look, sustained 3% growth would require, given you know, uh, the building blocks of, of growth are population growth and productivity. I am relatively optimistic that we'll see some better productivity numbers after a very, very lethargic period. But we're looking at population growth that's projected to be about half a percent a year, and that's assuming no reduction in immigration. If we get a reduction in immigration, it'll be even okay. lower. So what are you looking at, 3% productivity <clears throat> growth? That just doesn't seem realistic under any kind of investment boom that we might imagine. Is this eurosclerosis by any other name? <laughs> it is a global phenomenon. You know, this is uh, population growth is slowing. Populations are aging. Um, there is some tie between that and productivity. There's been sort of a mystery as to why all of this technological change hasn't yeah. shown up in productivity numbers. But if you actually, it, one of the implications could be that real growth is higher, but inflation is actually even lower than we're currently measuring. Right. And, and so that's an even bigger problem. Uh, for the, the nominee Fed. speaks this week. What will you listen for from future Chairman Powell? I think that uh, I think that current Governor Powell will keep it very close to the vest. I think he's uh, he's got a, one of the yeah. best poker faces on the FOMC for sure. Does so. it bother you? He's worth so much money. I saw a beautiful chart. Can't remember who. Does cite. it bother me? Yeah, I mean, I mean, <laughs> not at all. There, do we need a Fed chairman that you know is like Trump has got more money than God? Does it make a difference? No, I don't think it really okay. makes a difference. Um, I think I think what I am happy about is that Governor Powell has a healthy respect for the institution, has a deep understanding of the process, yeah. uh, and, and, and he's yeah. committed. I think he's committed to getting the job done right and not okay. playing with matches. Julia, thank you so much. Julia Coronado, she brought in leftover turkey, which is just killer as well, macro policy <laughs> perspectives as well.
This is a joy. With us now, the president of First Data Corporation, Guy Chirillo, uh, with us as well. First Data, of course, 24,000 large, out of New York. And, and, and Guy, I want to go back to your storied career at Chase. You were chief information officer, and you are widely uh, accredited with herding the cats into a room and creating the retail visibility of Chase. What was the first meeting like where you took Chase from an also-ran to the retail juggernaut it was when you left for First Data? You know, it was a great team there, and Jamie uh, led a great company, and we decided very early on in my time there that we were going to be a digital leader. And at that point, uh, we didn't really have the branches fully digital. We didn't have uh, ATMs fully digital, and we didn't have— You, you didn't know, have a website. Didn't, well, we had a website, but it, was, it wasn't what you would want it to be. And I think from that day in 2007 when I started uh, to the time I left in 2013, the focus was really to be digital everything. And to iterate, iterate, iterate. And I see that now at First Data. You've got the Clover system and that. To, to iterate, what are you iterating into? Are you iterating into charge cards being dead? You know, I think uh, charge cards, people will use a variety of formats. It's a combination of generational activity uh, as well as just ease of use. So I think you're going to see people tapping terminals. You're going to see people who are uh, swiping cards. They're going to be, you know, transacting on their oh. phones. It's pretty, it's pretty natural at this point. I've got the new toy. Got it like three days ago. As well, is Tim Cook's new wonder child your friend or enemy? You know, you never know at the end of the day, but they are really a consumer company and they are focused on ease of use in every way possible. I think payments integrated with a phone is a very uh, is a very positive aspect. It's also a safer transaction in many different ways. And uh, and it's hard to know in this payments business who is your friend or not, but we are the collaborator. Guy Shirillo with us uh, with First Data. Francine Lacroix in London. Francine? Yeah, Guy, it was interesting to, you know, what comes afterwards when you look at um, the kind of, the, you know, the big takeaways. Um, and if you look at Thanksgiving, Black Friday, so overall spending was up 11.9%. Is it just because there's cheap and it's too much stock or is it actually a healthy consumer? No, I think it's healthy consumer. We saw that 10 days prior to Thanksgiving and Black Friday being very robust. We've seen different things in different years, but it took nothing away from the holiday weekend. Uh, that That Activity was robust across retailers, electronics, and appliances in a very, very healthy way and carried forward right into uh, the holiday weekend where we saw, uh, you know, 9% increase in total spend in retail, 18% in electronics, uh, and, you know, a very robust uh, spending year over year, no matter what category you looked at. Do you assume, Guy, and I don't know if it's wrong to assume it, that just e-commerce, I think, making up some 29% of Thanksgiving Black Friday will just continue? So every year, if I speak to you in one or two years, it's going to be up 34% and then 45%, and then it'll finally reach that 50% mark. You know, I don't know where it levels off, but it definitely has a lot of room to grow. A phenomenon we saw all over the last couple of years, I've studied this pretty deep in a detailed way. In 2015 and 2016, we saw these bumps in e-commerce traffic during the holiday season, but it normalized when you went back into the first quarter. Yeah. We didn't see that in 2017. What we saw that happened during the holiday season continued right through 2017. Right. So people are more comfortable now. Your website always has the touchy-feely little shop somewhere where first data is saving the day within transaction costs. I get I get the, you know, that's what you do. Four million of them. Get that idea. How are you greeted at Amazon? When first data shows up at Amazon, what do you and Team Bezos talk about? 
you know, there's a lot of there are a lot of different opportunities. It's and it's not just Amazon. It could be Alipay, Apple Pay, Google Pay. It doesn't matter where we show up. Our ability to process transactions in a secure and safe way around the world. So what do you do for Bezos actually? What we do for Bezos is process a lot of the Amazon transactions that come through the website. For Amazon Prime and all that? Uh for a range of Amazon. We're not the only, we're not the exclusive right. to Amazon, okay. but we are uh, a provider of those services in a variety of different ways and, you know, very successfully, I hope, to continue. Does Amazon try to get market share at all cost? I don't know whether they're actually making you know losses in some of the products that they sell just to make sure that people get addicted to their service. You know, that we don't see. I think that Amazon is a, uh, is a great provider of products and services to... Uh, you know, to people around the world. And I think we see that again with a variety of our other uh, large scale retailers and providers. So, you know, they're, they're a fierce competitor to many. And, uh, you know, from our perspective, we will work to continue to provide safe commerce and transactions for Amazon and all the other companies we do business with around the world. Who can survive Amazon? So, Tom, a disclaimer, I'm definitely a better mother thanks to Amazon because I pre-buy everything. <laughs> it's waiting for me. But there must be things that people are too shy to buy on Amazon. You know, it's hard to tell. I, you know, I don't look inside the Amazon baskets, but I believe that people are just getting comfortable in general. They order their food in advance and pick it up in a line. They order their retail yeah. uh, in advance and, and have it shipped. There's, you know, it's a way of life. I mean, you and I are old enough. Francine's way too young to remember this, where you bought American Express traveler checks and Carl Malden said, don't leave home without them. Right. And you were a kid and your parents sent you out with this little wad of paper. I mean, that was a transaction that disappeared. Is your world going to disappear? I mean, are you staying up night looking at the, the College of New Jersey pennants you've got spread around the bedroom? <laughs> are, are you staring there going, oh, one day they're not going to use the Visa card or the MasterCard? No, you know, we love commerce. It's Whether it's Visa, Amex, MasterCard, Discover, whether it's Gift or EBT, we have one of the largest gift businesses in the country. And digital gift cards are, uh, are very robust. Um, in a, from a year over year Excuse me, Francine, those are exclusively used to purchase slime <laughs> and slime materials. No, can't you buy like kilos of slime? Kilos. You can buy Elmer's glue. I, I wish I had the Elmer's glue franchise for New York yeah, City. We love commerce. I think we <laughs> love commerce in all, in all formats. You'll we love take commerce. slime sales no, as well. No, not slime sales, but we yeah. love commerce. I mean, within this is the pressure to perform financially. What are you going to do to really jumps. I mean, you've come out of the bottom and all that and done better, but given ADP and the challenges with Mr. Ackman and all that, is there a pressure to goose the financials? You know, look, I think in every business you have this pressure. This company uh, is, a, is a huge transformation. If you think about where we came from with billion dollars of debt, significant losses in the private equity space for a long time, one of the largest IPOs still since October 2015 have transformed the company financially, growing the top line, improving the bottom line, expanding margins. I mean, we're going to continue to do what we have been doing. Yeah, no, Francine, we don't care. We just want, are you going to create jobs in Manhattan? Uh, we're going to create jobs around the country and around the world, yeah. Oh, see how he missed that? That I, was I like swavy that. how he did right. that. Save me, Francine. Where? Where, guys? There, is it, uh, you know, is it back office? Is it, uh, what kind of jobs will you create? Are they quality jobs? You know, I'm hoping that uh, it, the, the cyber-related profession is a definitely an opportunity to create jobs. We are actually helping all of our merchants uh, do the same. I think operationally, there are ways to continue to do things more and more efficiently. So I think yeah. that you know those are those are opportunities to eliminate roles. While on the other side, the front end of the house, there are opportunities to expand. I had three bad Uber charges on my Chase account this week, and I was going to call Jamie Diamond and complain. Can you get it fixed for me? I think you should call Jamie. He'll help you. Okay, I'll call Mr. Diamond. Very good. <laughs>
Thank you so much. Uh, Guy uh, Chirello with us with First Data Corp., their president, uh, moving the ship forward. And really interesting within all the Bitcoin and cyber currency is, is well. To a great part of the Keene family, Francine, September 9th, 2006, was one of the darkest days in the history of mankind. This is when Marshall Field and the name went away of a building that was the fabric for part of my family. We're honored to bring you on this uh, Cyber, what, what is it, Cyber Wednesday, Cyber Monday? What it reaches Mon- it Cyber a Monday? Monday. Cyber Spending Monday. Spending Monday. I'm, I'm rebranding it. Gerald Storch, Gerald Storch, which, which, if you know his history, Toys R Us, Target, and Hudson Bay and the rest of it. Stop it. Did you ever walk around the Marshall Field store at night? Oh, my like gosh. when the lights were out? What a wonderful store. As you, it, as describe you know. the experience of the third largest thing in the world. An amazing, amazing building on State Street in Chicago there. And uh, we bought it uh, when I was at uh, Target. Yeah. And uh, we set about to, to renovate it extensively, bring back the old heritage, we hung the largest American flag in the world in the atrium because that's yeah. what they used to do. Bring We brought back all the traditions. What a beautiful, beautiful old building, and what an enormous place. Talk about experience in retail. That was an experience. That w- and that's the nostalgia WGN and, the, you know, the the just the Midwest retail, the Christmas story, the, 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 the comedy about the department stores. That's the nostalgia. It's all gone. I'm on my iPhone X buying something right <laughs> now. Do we need your world of nostalgia anymore? Well, uh, my world includes the Internet. And the Internet is a technology just like uh, electricity. And we all use electricity in our business. It, it isn't just the exclusive domain of the electric utility companies. And so we're just at the very beginning of e-commerce and of the Internet. It's going to change dramatically. So what we see is the traditional venerable bricks and mortar companies are doing a pretty good job of starting to bring the Internet into their businesses. 85% of commerce is still done in the physical locations. What's going to happen in the future is every transaction will have an Internet component, Internet-enabled in one way or the other, or you'll buy online, pick it up in the store. But it doesn't mean we don't need bricks-and-mortar locations. We just don't need as many of them as we have so, now. So, Jerry, when you uh, – good morning, first of all, from London. Good morning. When you say we, we still need bricks-and-mortars, this is what kind of like a showcase. You know, so I went to a supermarket for like the first time in like three years yesterday – um, and it was a lovely experience because everything I do is online. But do I have time to go back? Probably not. So, Jerry, is this when, when people want to just, you know, do something different with the family? Is it a kind of show and tell? Or do you think people at some point will be fed up of shopping online and go back to bricks and mortars? Oh, I don't think it's getting fed up. I believe the Internet is, is revolutionary and it's transformational, but it's not transcendent. It doesn't mean it has to replace everything. So it's not just going to have a good time. It's also going to try it on to make sure that it fits before you buy it. So you don't have to go through buying 12 different sizes and returning the ones that don't fit. It's going to learn new things that you might not think about unless you walked in there. It's going to get immediate gratification to have the product instantly, able to walk out out with it. And don't forget, it still has superior economics to the online channel. This is what people forget. When When you buy something online and ship it to the home for home delivery, it's enormously expensive. And this is why most companies do not make money on the physical home delivery 
of goods that are ordered on the Internet. This is kind of the dirty right. little secret of the Internet right now. But, Jerry, if it's luxury, I mean, if you need a shop on, you know, uh, here Old Bond Street or New Bond Street or Oxford Street in the U.S. on Park Avenue, it's going to be more expensive than certainly getting a warehouse in New Jersey where you can just keep the stuff and ship it out. Yeah, but those luxury products are not going to sell online in that fashion. They want you to have the whole surround, have the high service, and you're going to want the service, too. If you're going to spend a lot of money for something that's high luxury, you certainly want to know the person you're buying it from. Have that kind of service. Okay. Have someone who knows you who can help you pick it out. Mace but, but, the well, internet is amazing. It's fantastic. Yeah. And it will grow, but it will be integrated into everything we do. Okay, down the income statement, and now we're talking to Jerry Storch, financial guy, which is really what he's famous for. Mr. Lundgren, down at Herald Square, is making 11, 12 cents in the dollar. He's cleaning Bezos' clock. Bezos is lucky if he's making nine cents. EBITDA as well. Nobody cares. Since when is your business based on this sales growth fiction of Amazon? versus valuing companies based on cash flow or something down the income There's statement. no doubt that, that uh, Jeff has done an amazing job at Amazon. And people are betting on the future and what he's done. Yes. And, and so at some point, though, everybody has to make money. Now, he's making a ton of money on the cloud. And in other ways, it's helping to sort of cross-subsidize what's going on in retail. Eventually, though, the bricks-and-mortar retailers will be smart. He'll be smart. You know, he bought Whole Foods. And you're going to have these combined models of bricks and mortar, and the internet that are economic to operate, both for Amazon and for others. Is, Huts, is Hudson Bay's company and the others, are they going to eventually make revenue growth? I mean, at the top line, that, as you just mentioned, that's the great differential. Again, How do we uh, get back to nominal GDP growth in retail? You know, uh, retailers in general can grow, and it'll be a mixture of traditional uh, bricks and mortar sales and online sales. And it won't, we are in the Roman numeral numbered pages of the book on the internet. It will not look anything like it does today. There will be so many different combinations and integrations of the internet with the stores that you will not recognize it. This notion that the internet is for home delivery will look as antiquated as wearing a ruffled shirt and a wig does today. Do you have a Hudson's Bay blanket on a bed at home? Do, do, do you like you have like a ginormous king size Jerry Storch bed, and you've got like the green, the red, the orange, the yellow, and the black striped blanket? Uh, my 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 secret is that we don't use a blanket. So. You don't use a blanket. No, I'm sorry. But uh, uh, you know the the uh, the future is very bright for retailers who make. Uh, rapid change in this environment. And you see a lot of successful retailers, even those that are principally bricks and mortar, who are they're offering the right value proposition. Someone like TJ Maxx, with a $45 billion market cap, is worth more than the entire department store sector combined. Uh, Costco, doing very, very well. Is it un-Canadian that the $500 Hudson Bay blanket is made in England? I don't know what that's about. Well, thank you so much. We have to do this again. Don't be a stranger. Jerry Storch uh, with the Storch Advisors uh, this morning on his Hudson Bay, on his Marshall Fields. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.